1 Peter chapter 2. And while you turn there, let me take this opportunity to wish you a happy Reformation Day. Happy Reformation Day. Traditionally, um, the last Sunday in October is Reformation Sunday, um, a Sunday that marks, commemorates the anniversary of the day in 1517, 499 years ago, that Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg uh, Church, sparking what became known as the Protestant Reformation and rending Christendom asunder. And this morning, we're going to pause our study of Luke. Yes, I know we just got done from a pause, but uh, this is, I think, a worthy topic, a chance to look back and study some of the great, precious truths rediscovered the Protestant Reformation, understanding these truths, valuing them, and learning from them. And this morning, we're going to look at a pivotally important and crucial doctrine from the Reformation and from the Bible, which is most significant, um, that, that misses a lot of the attention in the Reformation. When people think of the Protestant Reformation, the, the solas come to mind, the five alones, and in particular, two of them, Scripture alone, sola scriptura, and sola fide, faith alone. So people think of the Protestant Reformation, those two, faith alone, Scripture alone, are in many people's minds. But I would submit to you that without the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer, that those two solos would be insufficient to rediscover and break from Rome, to rediscover the gospel. In fact, as Philip Melanchthon records in 1546, on October 31st, a relatively obscure and unknown Catholic monk, the day before all feast day, the 33-year-old Martin Luther posted his 95 theses on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg. And this was a way the door functioned as a bulletin board for various announcements and related to academic and church affairs. And what Luther was doing is as he had studied and, and learned from a scripture, he came up with 95 areas of protest with current Catholic teaching, at least at the level of the people around him. Initially, Luther did not think that he was challenging the Pope or the church, but he was calling for a disputation, calling for a discussion to amend, correct, alter issues in the Catholic Church initially directed towards the issue of indulgences. Luther was calling for a disputation on the power and efficacy of indulgences out of love and zeal for the truth and the desire to bring it to light. Now, that disputation never happened. Um, the, the Roman Catholic Church did not respond, did not create this context of a discussion. What happened instead is Luther's 95 theses were copied and translated into the vernacular German and spread like wildfire. And as the common folk reading Luther's arguments and his quotations of Scripture began to read them, they began to say, yeah, what about this? And so finally... Four years later, Rome had a problem on its hands, and they did indeed call together a council, and Luther was summoned to the Diet of Worms, um, which was where he was to give an account. And it wasn't as much a disputation, which is what Luther had asked for, but rather a trial. And the reason for that is this. In Roman Catholic teaching, the church and the church teaching offices get to interpret Scripture. And so Luther was calling for a debate and a disputation upon matters that the church had already ruled. 
And they weren't about to have a debate and a disputation. The question Luther had to answer at Worms was not, why do you think this? But simply, will you submit? Will you confess? Will you agree with what you are bound to agree with, the the canons and judgments of the Holy Roman Catholic Church? That is, of course, where Luther on April 18th, 1521, uttered these famous words, unless I am convinced by the testimony of Scripture or by clear reason... I do not trust either in popes or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is held captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Here I stand. Amen. And thus the gauntlet was laid down. But what is at issue is not simply the issue of the gospel. The gospel was at issue. Simply the notion of salvation by grace through faith in Christ's work alone. That was absolutely at issue. But the crucial issue was by what right did Luther or other German peasants have the right to read their Bible and interpret it? These are questions that we take for granted this side of the Protestant Reformation. These were not issues taken for granted back then. By what right? By what authority? The the postmodern challenge today is similar. You read your Bible your way, but I've got a different reading. Who's to say who's right? And Rome, in an attempt to guard against just chaos and anarchy, where everyone was reading their Bible and getting different interpretations, centralized the teaching authority to the official positions within the church. And so Luther rediscovered not just in the Scripture the gospel of grace through faith in Christ alone, but he rediscovered the priesthood of the believer, clearly taught in Scripture. In fact, I just want to begin by reading 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, and then we'll dive in and look at this issue. And I hope that by the end of this morning, you will begin to understand why this is such an important doctrine taught in the Word of God, and, and what responsibilities come upon us as a result. Peter is writing, if you look at the beginning of chapter 1, not to just the elders, not just the apostles. Verse 1 of chapter 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. He's writing to believers. He's writing to the church, not some subset. And speaking to the church in chapter 2, verse 4, he writes this, as you come to him, Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for those who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they do not obey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So as we study this issue of the priesthood of the believer, I just want to ask and answer two questions. And the first question may seem obvious, but I think it's important for us to see it in Scripture and to understand its implications. That question is this. Who has the authority to interpret God's Word, the Scriptures? Who has the authority to do that? By what right do we have to read and interpret God's Word? And that may seem like an obvious question. Well, of course we do. But, but millions of people who name the name Christian today would disagree. And for hundreds of years of church history, the church disagreed. And so I want to look at this in two ways, by looking at the Roman Catholic answer and the Reformers' answer, and hopefully we'll arrive then at the biblical answer. Sometimes the best way to understand what is true is, is to look at the contrary, what, what contradicts it. Sometimes you put a diamond on a, a black velvet cloth to highlight it, sparkle and shine. And that's my attempt this morning. Um, I'll be quoting somewhat from, from Roman Catholic sources directly. I don't want to make a straw man. I want to let them speak for themselves. Rome's position has not changed in the last 500 years on this issue. So if the Roman Catholic Church is to answer the question, who has the authority to interpret scriptures? The answer is simple, clear, univocal, and unchanging. It is the magisterium or the priests. Um, this, this is absolutely emphatic Catholic teaching. I've got from their most recent um, catechism on their website this answer to questions 85, 87, and 88. The task of giving an authentic interpretation of the Word of God, whether it is written in form or in the form of tradition, has been entrusted to the living teaching office of the church alone. Its authority in this matter is exercised in the name of Jesus Christ, this means that the task of interpretation has been entrusted to the bishops in communion with the successor of Peter, the bishop of Rome, or as otherwise known, the Pope. Mindful of Christ's words to his apostles, he who hears you hears me, the faithful receive with docility the teaching and directives that their pastors give them in different forms. The church's magisterium, which is their term for the teaching offices collectively, Magisterium simply means all of the teaching offices, the, the ordained and official teaching offices in the church. The church's magisterium exercises the authority it holds from Christ to the fullest extent when it defines dogmas. That is, when it proposes in a form obliging to the Christian people to an irrevocable adherence of faith. Which is to say, when they, when they speak dogmatically, the, the faithful are obliged irrevocably to agree. The truths contained in divine revelation, and also when it proposes in the fit and the way truths having a necessary connection to these. Now that is the most current answer Rome has given. That's from their website, from their current catechism. That is identical to the answer that was given back in the 15th century. I'll give you one other quote from uh, Pope Leo's encyclical on the church in Scotland from 1898. But as the church was to last to the end of time, something more was required besides the bestowal of sacred scriptures. It was obviously necessary that the divine founder should take every precaution lest the treasure of 
heavenly given truths possessed by the church should ever be destroyed, which would assuredly have happened had he not left those doctrines, had he left those doctrines to each person's private judgment. So what Pope Leo XIII is saying is that if Christ had only given the church the scriptures, we would have an anarchy where everyone had their own private interpretation. So it was necessary for Christ to give something more than scripture. I continue the quote, it stands to reason, therefore, that a living, perpetual magisterium was necessary in the church from the beginning which, by the command of Christ himself, should besides teaching other wholesome doctrines give an authoritative explanation of holy writ, and which, being directed and safeguarded by Christ himself, could by no means commit itself to erroneous teaching. It was in that encyclical that the Catholic Church first put into writing its teaching of papal inerrancy and infallibility, that when the when the Pope speaks ex cathedra or from Peter's chair, when the magisterium speaks in that way, they speak with the authority equal to Scripture inerrantly. One final quote I want to read. Um, what, is, what is Rome's opinion of normal Christians trying to read and understand the Bible? This is from as recent as 1990 from the Basic Catholic Catechism by William G. Most. A theologian, putting... Quotation marks. A theologian who would claim he needs to be able to ignore the magisterium in order to find the truth is strangely perverse. The teaching of the magisterium is the prime, God-given means of finding the truth. Nor could he claim academic freedom lets him contradict the church. In any field of knowledge, academic freedom belongs only to a properly qualified professor teaching in his own field. But one is not properly qualified if he does not use the correct method in working in his field. A science professor who would want to go back to medieval methods would be laughed off campus, not protected. Now, in Catholic theology, the correct method is to study the sources of revelation, but then give the final word to the church. He who does not follow that method is not a qualified Catholic theologian. Then he quotes... From Vatican II, the task of authoritatively interpreting the word of God, whether written or handed on in tradition, has been entrusted exclusively to the living magisterium of the church whose authority is exercised in the name of Christ. So Luther's task was twofold. He was challenging the church's teaching and its reading of scripture. But before there could ever be any dispute of the text itself, he had to establish that he had a right to read the text. The Christians had a right to read the text. And so as Luther read his Bible and he came across the doctrine of the priesthood of believers, it, it turned on its head a lot of Catholic assumptions of the church. There's, there's three that I want to look at briefly. See, in the Roman Catholic system, there's a division, point one here, between the sacred and the secular. Life is, is made up of two worlds, the sacred world, the secular world. Some things are secular. Some things are just of common and of unimportance. And then there are spiritual things, sacred things. Now, they get this notion in part from the Old Testament. But you'll see part of the confusion on this issue is, is our understanding of who the church is and how the new covenant differs from the old covenant. Because in Israel, there were things that were holy and there were things that were common. There's a whole holiness code and there were certain things that were unclean and certain things that were clean. In fact, Leviticus 10, 10 through 11 says this, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. You are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. So the Catholic Church says, there it is. 
There's a clean, there's an unclean. There's a holy, and there is a secular. That's the first piece. Now, with that twofold division in the world, they believe in a twofold division within the church. The second piece of this understanding is that they believe in a division within the church of a mediating priestly class, clergy, and a non-priestly class, laity. So just as there is, in their view, a division in the world between the sacred and the secular, so there is within the church a division between a mediating priestly class who offer sacrifices and prayers for the people who offer forgiveness of sins and absolution, and the non-priestly class, the laity. So there's a, there's a twofold hierarchy. And they would, they would appeal to some passages of Scripture to back this up. If you think of the, the account of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, as he's riding along in his chariot, he's reading the scroll of Isaiah, he's, he's reading it, and when, when um, he's reading it, he cries out, and in Acts chapter 8, Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And the eunuch said, How can I understand unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and to sit with him. And so the Rome would look at that passage and say, you see, this poor man, this poor Ethiopian eunuch couldn't understand the scriptures without an authorized teacher. And Philip was a deacon. And so the Lord arranged by the Holy Spirit to have him there so he could be taught because otherwise, how could he understand? He has it in his own words. Okay. What exactly did Philip teach him though? In verse 35, Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scriptures, he told him the good news about Jesus. I, I think they're kind of missing the point there. What the eunuch lacked was not some ability to understand the text. What he lacked was additional information that hadn't yet been written, what we call the gospels, the account of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Those didn't exist then. And so the, the eunuch is just reading a prediction without any knowledge of the fulfillment. And what he required was the knowledge of what took place in Jerusalem, what took place with Jesus Christ. I don't see in that passage any authoritative teaching position within the church. Rather, someone who knows the good news of Jesus' death and burial and resurrection, sharing it with someone who did not, thus making sense of the Old Testament passages. But that's, that's one of the passages Rome would look to. Consequently, because there's this twofold division in, in the Roman schema of things, the clergy who stand in between men, that, that's why the clergy alone can offer the mass. That's why the, that's why the priests offer prayers for the dead, because they're mediating, they're standing in between the, the mass of people, the laity, and God. Consequently, only the clergy are able to interpret the Bible. And the passage they would turn to, and I'd ask you to turn to quickly, is Acts chapter 15. They make a big deal out of Acts chapter 15, and what is known as the Jerusalem Council. A strife had arisen within the church over the question of Gentiles being included. And, and what is required and incumbent upon the Gentiles if they want to be part of the church? Because if you remember, up until Cornelius' conversion in Acts chapter 10, the church, Christians, were all Jews. But starting in Acts chapter 10, and then onward, filthy, dirty, uncircumcised Gentiles were becoming part of the church. And there was debate within the church, did they need to be circumcised? Did they need to obey the Mosaic law? And what happened is a, a council was convened with notable people, notable church leaders. Rome's going to make a big deal of this. If you just look with me, starting in verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, and here's that 
that first bishop of Rome, according to them, taking charge. Brothers, you know that in earlier days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. And the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from them. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those who are Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled and from blood. And from, for from ancient generations, Moses had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men among them and send them to Antioch. And so the councils met, and Peter speaks, and Paul and Barnabas speak, and James, the half-brother of our Lord, speaks, and they come to a conclusion. They come to a consensus. It seemed good to all the apostles and elders. Notice the next bit, though. With the whole church. See, Rome wants to turn this into the first magisterial council. The apostles, the elders get together and they decide the matter. And yet even though the text only records Paul, Peter, and James speaking, somehow the whole church is involved and the whole church agrees as well. And then when they write their letter, they don't claim any magisterial authority. Rather, they appeal to that consensus that they had. Look at verse 23. The phrase is repeated three times in Acts. Luke is, is emphatically making this point. By what authority do these men write to the church at large? Not through some magisterial teaching authority, but rather, hey, we all got together, they say, all the apostles and the elders and the whole church, and through the Holy Spirit's grace, we're all of one mind. We all agree on the same thing. And, and we see in that the work of the Spirit. And so in verse 25, it seemed good to us, having come to one accord. Verse 28, it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden than these requirements. See, if this was the church's first magisterial synod, You'd expect them to, to claim the same types of rights and authority that Rome claims. Rather, all they appeal to is their unanimous decision. We're of one mind, and we see the Spirit at work in that. And so we would tell you the wisdom that God's given us. And that's the way the Jerusalem Council writes. But that's the Roman view. And that has been the view in the church since the Middle Ages. It persists until now. And by that view, Luther had no right. You and I have no right to disagree. We are not authorized interpreters. So by what right? do we get to read the Bible? By what right can we say, no, I disagree? Well, it's by the right of the priests to the believers. What's the Reformation's answer? What's the biblical answer? Who has the right and the authority to interpret Scripture? All believers, 
all believers. We just saw in 1 Peter twice the church, all Christians being referred to as a nation of priests, a kingdom of priests. Let me read for you again first, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 1 verse 6. He has made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Revelation 5.10, speaking to the Lamb. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So the Bible's teaching is this, that Jesus Christ is the prophet, is the king, and is our great high priest. And through union with him, by virtue of being baptized in and by and with the Holy Spirit, we share in his prophetic ministry, in his priestly ministry, in his kingly ministry. That's the basis for Jesus' promises that those who persevere, they will reign with me, right? That, that's exercising rule. And even the church's authority to receive and to reject members is, is an exercise of that authority that Christ gives. It's, it's virtue of him. It's not inherent to us. But we are authorized as, as Christians in Christ to exercise some of his rule. We are authorized as well at prophetic function, speaking to the world, to the culture. We also, in Christ, have been turned into a kingdom of priests. And yes, in, in, in the old covenant and in the old economy, there were things that were sacred and there were things that were secular. There were things that were holy and things that were common, things that were clean and unclean. But what we learn now is that, point one, all things are sacred. All things are sacred. Romans 11, uh, 36 gives us the foundation for this. For from him and through him and to him are all things. All things find their source in God. All things continue to exist through God. And everything in this world, this podium, this Bible, my shoes, that chair, exist for the glory of God. And because they exist for him and his glory. They are holy. That's the reason why Paul can then say in 1 Corinthians 10.31 that whether you eat or drink, do all things to the glory of God. Eating can be a holy activity. Drinking can be a holy activity if you do it to the glory of God in faith. There is no sacred and secular dichotomy. All of life is holy. There is not a molecule or mode of dust or area of life in which the resurrected Lord does not claim mine. And so God calls us to direct all things and all our endeavors to his glory. That's the basis for the Protestant understanding that work is holy. Work can be offered unto God so slaves and servants can be instructed, don't, don't serve as man-pleasers, but work heartily as unto the Lord. Understand this, if you're a plumber, if you're a ditch digger, if you do it to the glory of God, you are doing holy work. Acceptable, priestly work to God's glory. That, that, that what Zeb does with sound and, and electronics is, is no more or less holy than what I'm doing in this very moment. If it's done to the glory of God. There is no sacred and secular sphere. Rather, everything is for his glory and everything can be done for God's glory. This is a key Protestant understanding. Second, there is no class system in the church. There is one mediator between man and God. One and only one who stands between man and God. First Timothy chapter 2. Verse 5, there is one God 
and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. You don't need to go to any earthly man to access God. You can talk directly to him in prayer because there is only one mediator and we are united to him by his spirit in him. Which then leads to the conclusion that all believers are a kingdom of priests. All believers are a kingdom of priests. And when Peter quotes that in, in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, specifically verse 9, you are a chosen race, a holy priesthood, a holy nation, I mean, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Peter is quoting Exodus 19, which is very significant because Exodus 19 is when Israel comes to Mount Sinai to meet with God. It's one chapter, in fact, before the giving of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. And in Exodus 19, as God explains his purpose for calling Israel out of Egypt, drawing them to this mountain to enter into a covenant with them, he says this, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, You shall be a treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. God's intent and purpose for Israel was that that nation would function as a kingdom of priests, that they would mediate the knowledge of God to the nations around and to the world. Now, sadly, Israel, for most of its history, failed miserably in that task. And by Jesus' day, rather than having an outward reach of sharing the good news of God's grace to the world, there was an inward focus of superiority and racial pride. We are sons and daughters of Abraham. We are not Gentile sinners. And so now Peter is letting us know that God is fulfilling this desire through the church that we become a nation and kingdom of priests. This is the basis of our ability to read Scripture. This is the basis of so many things. And it's important for you to understand, you, if you are in Christ Jesus here today, you are priests and priestesses. In Christ, you are. You may not have known that. You probably didn't get up this morning thinking, I'm a priest. But you are if you're a Christian. In fact, it was Luther's hope and desire that the term priest for everyday Christians would become just as common as the term Christians itself. I want to read a couple quotes from Luther on this. It is pure invention that Pope, bishops, priests, and monks are called the spiritual estate, while princes, lords, artisans, and farmers are called to the temporal estate. This is indeed a piece of deceit and hypocrisy, yet no one needs to be intimidated by it. For this reason, all Christians are truly of the spiritual estate. There is no difference among them except that of office. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 13, that we are all one body, yet every member has its own work by which it serves the others. This is because we are all one through our baptism, one gospel, one faith. We're all Christians alike. We are all consecrated priests, as Peter says in 1 Peter 2.9, you are a royal priesthood. There is no true basic difference between layman and priest, prince and bishop, between religious and secular, except for the state of office and work, but not for the sake of status. They are all of the spiritual estate. All are truly priests, bishops and popes. They are all of one body of Christ the head, and all are members of one another. Christ does not have two different bodies, one temporal and one spiritual, but there is one head and one body. 
If you're, if you're someone trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you're sitting here this morning as a priest. Which brings the next question, and if that's true, that's what the Bible teaches of us. If we are priests, what then are the responsibilities of a priest to God? This is a wonderful truth, and I expect up to this point you're, you're amening. You don't have to listen to some earthly authority tell you what the Bible means, but you can read it yourself to understand it. I think that truth agrees with us. We say amen. But there are responsibilities that come with the privilege of being priests and priestesses of the living God. And Luther is aware of this as well. He writes, the priest is not made. He must be born a priest, inherit his office. I refer here to the new birth, the birth of water and the spirit. Thus, all Christians must become priests, children of God and co-heirs with Christ, the most high priest. Men universally consider the title of priest glorious and honorable. It is acceptable to everyone, but the duties and sacrifice of the office are rarely accepted. Let me say that again. The duties and the sacrifices of the office are rarely accepted. The Christian priesthood costs life, property, honor, friends, and all worldly things. It costs Christ the same on the Holy Cross. So, so what are the duties and responsibilities of priests? If we are priests, what does that mean? Four things. I just want to look at four things briefly. This list could be longer. One, as God's priests, we announce God's word to the world. As God's priests, we announce God's word to the world. It's right there in 1 Peter 2.9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people called for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Does it mean that you're a priest? I'm a priest. It means we are tasked with the proclamation of God's glory and grace to the world. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul, using a different metaphor than priest, speaks of us as ambassadors, saying this, Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come, and all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God has entrusted you and me with this glorious task of, of, of sharing the gospel. And this is a wonderful truth. But I fear in some senses we can be in danger of falling back into the, the Catholic error on this point. Because I want to draw two further implications from this. If that is true, if as priests we are tasked with announcing God's word to the world, then what that means is evangelism then is not the work of professionals. Evangelism is not the work of professionals. It's our responsibility, isn't it? It's, it's not the, the leaders of the church's responsibility. 
And, and, and since the Second Great Awakening and, and the Big Tent Revivals, it's become popular for evangelism to be the work of one. And you got a big event, and you draw people in, and you get a big speaker in, and he preaches the gospel. And, and God can work through that. But, but if we're priests, you can speak the gospel. I can speak the gospel. It also means that evangelism is not the primary purpose of our gatherings. And in the seeker-sensitive movement, evangelism has, has become not sharing the glorious gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in the unbelieving world, but rather, do you want to come to my church? See, I just shared my faith. I just evangelized. Do you want to come to church? And then the professional, the priestly class, can, can share the gospel. I might mess it up. No. By God's grace and his spirit, you are a kingdom of priests. And you have been tasked to speak the good news to the world. The purpose of our gatherings is not fundamentally evangelism. Oh, that can happen. It does happen. The purpose of our gatherings is the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. In, in 1 Corinthians 14, 22 to 25, listen to what Paul says. Therefore, if the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and an outsider or an unbeliever enter, well, they not say that you're out of your minds. I'm not quoting that to deal with tongues, I'm quoting that to deal with is Paul is not assuming unbelievers are coming to church. Oh, they're welcome. They're welcome. If you're here today and you don't know God in Christ, you're, you're welcome. We love you. you. Please feel at home. But that's not the primary purpose for the gathering. Paul says, if, if an unbeliever enters. That, that's not the purpose of our gathering. The purpose of our gathering is to worship the living God, to hear his word, and according to Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, what, what am I doing here? What's my purpose as a pastor and an elder? We've, we've looked at this again and again, but I want you to look at it through the concept of all believers being priests and having a priestly duty and service entrusted to them. Ephesians chapter 4, 11 through 12, he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists, the shepherd teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. The purpose of the leadership of the church is not the work of ministry. The purpose of the leadership of the church is to train, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And part of what we're doing this morning is equipping, training, so you can go share the good news of the gospel with your neighbor, with your coworker. Okay, we're going to move on. First, we announce God's word to the world as his priests. Second, we interpret God's word together. We interpret God's word together. Now, Rome was afraid of, and I think this is a legitimate concern, of if you unleashed the Bible to the common folk, that you would have every person coming up with their own private interpretation. You'd have chaos. What you'd have, in effect, is the, the fallout after the multiplication of languages at Babel. You would have doctrinal Babel. And to guard against that, they centralize the interpretive authority within the church. And yet what we see in Scripture is another aspect of why we gather and what we do in function as a local church is we are an interpretive community and that together we interpret God's word. And again, this is another danger we can fall back into, the Roman error. If you view me as some authority, I've said this repeatedly before, but I will say it again. Please do not listen to a thing I say unless you see it in Scripture. I am not an authority. I'm not, a, I'm not some higher-level priest. The leaders of our church are not in a different caste or class. 
Rather, we are showing from the Scriptures what we believe to be true. That's one of the reasons why the preaching time takes so much longer. I've talked to some people who come from churches where the, the, the sermon or the sermonette, as I sometimes call it, is you know, a homily that lasts 5, 10, 15 minutes. How do you go on for 40, 50 minutes? Well, because I feel the need to show my math. I don't expect you to believe anything I say unless I can show you from God's Word why I think that's true. See, if, if you can come at this, if I came at this simply as an authority, I could just tell you the answer. No need to show why that's the answer. One of the things I love about our ABF time is we get to discuss, and there's pushback, and if I say something amiss, people call me on it. And believe me, they do. And I thank God for that. Do not mistake me as some priest or pope who's got some authoritative word. I'm somebody freed by the body to, to study and to teach. But God will require of you what you believe. And you won't be able to stand before God if you believe something wrong, saying, well, Pastor Jeremy taught it, so I just believed it. Because you're a priest. God has made you his priest. You see some examples of this in Scripture. That the Apostle Paul was preaching, and yet he commends, Luke commends the, the believers in Berea, when he writes this, now these Jews were more no noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with eagerness. They received what Paul said with eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So the apostle Paul shows up, a God-authorized spokesman and apostle, and they hear it eagerly, and then they go to their Bibles and they test it to see if it's true. And Luke says that made them more noble. And you ought to be doing the same with me and anyone else teaching. We interpret God's word together. In 1 Corinthians 14, 29, as the Apostle Paul speaks about a corporate church service, he says this, let two or three prophets speak, let the others weigh what is said. So somebody gets up and speaks, and the rest of the church sits in judgment. The rest of the church chews on it and weighs it. Very similar to what Paul says in, in 1 Thessalonians, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. And he's speaking corporately. You all don't despise prophecies. You all test everything. You weigh everything. This is an activity that we do. If you think you see something in the Bible, if you think you learn something, God's intention is that you would funnel it back into this body. Share it with your brothers and sisters. This is one of the ways we speak the truth and love to each other. This is one of the ways we encourage each other's faith. And this is one of the ways we confirm and verify our readings of Scripture. And ultimately, when we all agree with the same thing, we can have some confidence in it. So just two years ago, we adapted and added to our statement of faith after about four months of discussion, um, paragraphs understanding what we understand the Bible to say about human sexuality and marriage. And one of the wonderful things is when it came time to vote on that, it was a unanimous decision. So we got together and we studied the word together and we talked about it. And yes, the leadership took lead in that discussion. But at the end of the day, it was our unanimous, univocal decision that gave us the confidence to say, yeah, we, we think we got this right. We see the Spirit's work in our consensus. And we added it to our statement of faith. Because we interpret God's word together. The basis for that is, again, our union with Christ and the Spirit. So that John writing in 1 John chapter 2, verses 26 to 27 says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. 
But just as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as you have been taught in him, abide in him. And he's referring to the Holy Spirit. Priests are anointed, baptized for service. Paul makes this even more explicitly clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Listen to this. We have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Why? Why did God give us his spirit? In part, at least, we get this answer. That we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but he himself is judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. By virtue of the Holy Spirit, you have the mind of the author living inside of you you are able to read and understand God's word. Yes, we need each other. Yes, this is something we do together. Yes, there can be dangers of people just going off on their own. We need each other to check ourselves in balance. Whenever I think I see something, I, I, I annoyed Pastor Daniel endlessly with this because I'll show up and knock on his door. Hey, what do you think about what? Do you? And so we need each other to do that. And in that lies the legitimate value of commentaries and books and other things. This is all the importance of of church creeds and church history. They're important because they're a witness to what other believers have thought God's word says. There's a danger. We can sort of go beyond sola scriptura to solo scriptura, which is basically just my Bible and me and nothing else. It matters what the church has thought throughout church history. It should matter that in the fourth century, all the known Christians got together and all of them came to an agreement on the deity of Christ. That should matter. It's not scripture. It's not ultimately authoritative, but it's noteworthy. Because either the entire church getting together at Nicaea to decide that issue was deceived in an error, which is possible, or the Holy Spirit brought them to one mind in full accord. Regardless, the Nicaean Creed is worth consideration as a testament and a witness to what the entire universal church of that day in the fourth century believed about Jesus Christ's deity. That's the value of books. Again, when I read a book, I read it because I want to know why the author thinks what he thinks. It's not that John MacArthur or John Piper or D.A. Carson's are authorities and they're, they're priests and they're in the know. Rather, why do they think what they think? These are men who I've trusted as, as reliable and faithful, so I'll listen to what they say. But again, at the end of the day, as a priest, I need to weigh what is said. I need to test all things and hold fast to what is good. Point C. First, we announce God's word to the world as his priests. Second, we interpret God's word together. Third, we teach God's word to each other. This was one of the functions of the priesthood. In Deuteronomy 33, verse 10, as Moses' song is saying farewell, he goes tribe by tribe, blessing them. When he gets to the tribe of Levi in chapter 30, verse 10, he says this, They shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your law. They shall put incense before you and whole burnt offerings on your altar. And when Israel returns to the land after the Babylonian captivity... In Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 7 through 9, and they break out the scroll of the law and they read it, we read this. The Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book of the law of God clearly 
and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. So the priests in the Old Testament taught the people God's word. And this side in the new covenant as God's priests, we do the same thing. So you read Colossians 3, 6. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. To what effect? Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You realize as God's priests, all of us are called upon to teach. All of us have a ministry of teaching. Every parent knows this. If you're a friend of anyone, God has called upon you to speak the truth and love to one another, to to, to communicate his truth to each other. You may not be called to to preach a sermon or even necessarily to leave a Bible study, but you are called upon as God's people, as his priesthood, to speak truth to one another. In Ephesians 6, 4, we read, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's, That's a ministry of your priestly function. But I'll take it one step further. Paul's expectation, that, again, combining the last two points, that the body's weighing and judging and chewing on and, and considering what is taught. Now, when, when Paul speaks of the gathering of the church, he speaks of the teaching ministries, um, words of knowledge, utterances of a tongue, interpretation, or revelation, or prophecy. And in that context, he says this, the women should keep silent in the churches. He's not forbidding total silence, but what he's saying is when the body gets together and words are used to edify corporately and teaching corporately is done, the, the women are not participating in that ministry. And people bristle with that. But, but ladies, there's, there's a flip side to this that you can, you can encourage your husbands with. If they have any questions, this is Paul. Um, let me get back there. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. What does that imply? That implies by the time the husbands are leaving, they are able to recommunicate and reteach whatever was taught and discussed that morning at church. That's what it seems to imply to me. So Paul envisions a scenario where somebody speaks and there's a weighing. And there's a, a chewing on and, and a, a testing of what is said. And there's discussion. And there's, there's a, it's kind of what to some degree looks like my ABF at times. And the result is the people are leaving, are able to explain and communicate on to their family what was taught and said. So, so ladies, you can ask your husbands when you get home what, what my main point was this morning or, or not. As the Spirit leads, as the Spirit leads. Um, but we are to teach. We're called upon to teach. And, and you don't get to sit back and say, well, the guys who went to seminary, the guys with the degrees, the professionals, I'll let them do that. It's a neglection of your priestly duty. And, and you might as well go back to Rome in that sense. Christ has freed us to be a nation of priests. Christ has freed us to read his word, but with that comes a responsibility, a responsibility to announce his word, a responsibility to interpret his word, and a responsibility to teach his word to each other. Finally, and briefly, what are our responsibilities as priests of God? We pray and intercede for one another. Is it biblical to confess your sins to a priest? Absolutely. The priesthood of believers James 5, 16 to 18 says this, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. 
Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain. And then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain. James is just, one of the things we do is priests for each other. Because you're not a priest for yourself. We're priests for each other. We minister to each other. We, we encourage each other. We teach each other. We pray for each other. We confess our sins to each other. And, and that prayer is effective as we're ministering as priests for one another. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-12. through 12, Paul writes this, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And we're interceding for the world. That's what it means to be priests. This is one of the reasons why we organize our church service the way we do. This is why we have Sunday schools and small groups as a way of drawing you in that you can take more and more part in the interpretive activity, that you can take more and more part as God gives you insight in sharing that to the body. You're not called to be passive. You're called to be priests, and we need to go out and priest. If I can turn that into a verb. We need not neglect it. I just want to close with Luther's warning. Men universally consider the title of a priest a glorious and honorable thing. It is acceptable to everyone. But the duties and the sacrifice of the office are rarely accepted. The Christian priesthood costs life, property, honor, friends, and all worldly things. But remember this, it cost Christ the same on the Holy Cross. Brothers and sisters, those in Jesus Christ, I just want to encourage you. God has equipped you. God has commissioned you. God has authorized you. And he has commanded you to function as his kingdom of priests, to proclaim his word, to interpret his word, to teach his word, and to pray and intercede for each other and for the world. Let's close. Lord God, what a tremendous honor and privilege you have bestowed upon us. And we thank you that through the work of your servants, your clay pots, the reformers, you, these truths of your word have been rediscovered. And we thank you that the, the word of God, once locked away from common people, is now freely in our hands. But Lord, we know that familiarity can breed contempt. And we who have so many more Bibles and translations and so much more access to knowledge and tools and take that responsibility lightly. Guard us from that, Lord. Let us take this honor and privilege, being a nation of priests, seriously. Let us undertake that task with zeal, enthusiastically. And let us encourage one another in that activity, Lord. Give us the grace to speak your word, your gospel to our neighbors, to our co-workers. Lord, give us the diligence to read and reread with an eye to understanding your word. And Lord God, give us the love, enthusiasm. Give us the conviction to speak the truth and love to our neighbor, to teach your word and statutes to each other. And Lord, give us the compassion and the grace to continually lift each other up in prayer, interceding on one another's behalf. Lord God, until our great high priest, prophet, and king returns. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord bless you. Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. You are dismissed.